Smith. Scholars believe that, that Nineveh was probably 500 miles from uh, where he was spit back up on, onto land. Somewhere around Joppa, they believe he was spit back up. And so they estimate it was about 500 miles. And, and if you know anything about the transportation of those days, they didn't just jump on the interstate and get there pretty quick. I mean, in Montana, that's, I mean, we drive 500 miles all the time. But there, they had probably jumped on a camel or, or, or some kind of pack animal, or he might have even walked. So it might have been a month-long journey, um, at least several days, maybe up to a week, to get, that five, to, get to that 500-mile mark. Um, so it would have taken a, a great deal of time for him to get to Nineveh. But I think there's, there's even importance in this. Um, when we first see Jonah disobey, we see that the focus, that, that the author is focusing heavily on the journey. When I was thinking about this this week, almost his inability to get where he wanted to go. But the focus was more on him trying to get somewhere. And so knowing that the second time around actually obeys and heads towards Nineveh, there's not that much focus on the journey. It was a month-long journey. And there could have been a whole chapter or there could have been half of this book could have been spent on him taking the journey to Nineveh. But it's different from the beginning of the book because... The focus isn't just on his journey at this point. So when he disobeyed, the focus was on his disobedience in the journey. But here it's mentioned little. The emphasis here is more on his destination. It's more on the city of Nineveh. And so it kind of sets the stage that that this shift of focus from the journey to the city is what we're going to be looking at this morning. So let's look again at verse, or verse 3. There's a second part to verse 3. It says, uh, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. And this is how, how, how Nineveh is emphasized. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. You see, the story starts to unfold a little bit here, and we see some of the details about this city. Just like Elf in New York. Uh, you know, one of those tall buildings. I remember in Chicago, we did the Sears Tower, and you look out over all those suburbs, and it just stretches for miles. I've even, an interesting thing to Google, look up cities by their land mass, how many square miles they take up. It's, it's pretty astonishing. In fact, number five or something like that is Butte. So look, look, look it up. It's kind of an interesting fact, but, but you get this idea of Nineveh taking three days to get across, and for those, those days, back then, that was a, a large city. So we begin to see these, th- th- this picture of Nineveh unfold. So Nineveh was very large. And when we start to think of a large city, it was probably like, like any large city. Now it wasn't as modern, but, but the experience that Jonah probably had there uh, was very similar to ours. You know, it was, it was vast with people. Because you experience the buildings and the cars and all the, the different, you know, we go out to eat when we go to the big city because they got all the restaurants. You experience all that, but, but even more uh, shocking in the big city, even to us, is, is the, the vastness of people. I'm shocked at how many people are on the freeway at 5 o'clock. Or I'm shocked how many people are on the freeway at midnight. It's like, where are all these people going? What are they doing out on the road at midnight? So we know that Nineveh, there was probably, you know, thousands upon thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people there. Um, the other thing with all those people, it was probably diverse. One of the things the Assyrians did that was kind of different than a lot of the uh, ruling nations back there is, is, is they would conquer a people 
and they would actually take a lot of them captive. Instead of just wiping them off the face of the earth, they made their population larger by taking them captive. In fact, that's what happens to uh, the Ninevites, or to the, to, the, to the Israelites. They're taken captive, and they're, they're taken to Assyria. And so because of that, all the different peoples that they had conquered were probably uh, apparent in the city. So John, Jonah's walking through there, and he's probably seen a, a majorly diverse community. And at the same time, we know how a city is, and the, the city was probably full of activity. And it was a melting pot of sorts. You know, it, it, it had all kinds of commerce going on, and, and kind of like, like this video we're watching where there's so many things going on. You know, he's walking past the world's best cup, cup of coffee. I need to go there. I like coffee. But, but there's all this crazy stuff going on. You're just kind of wide-eyed looking around like, man, what is going on here? And I think most important in all of this, in the craziness of this city, the vastness and the diversity, Jonah probably stood out. That's even similar to this video. Now, he wasn't probably in elf clothes, but he might as well have been because he was a Jew in an, an Assyrian city with all the, the laws that they follow and, 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 and the, the, the Torah and the way that he probably stood out. And his skin might have even been a different color. He probably stood out. You know, and I, when I thought about this, I, my first thought was like Jethro Bodine. You guys ever watch Beverly Hillbillies? I feel more like Jethro Bodine when I go to the big city, especially when I'm driving. Like, I'm just trying to figure out, like, how do I merge? What do I do here? Like, Jethro Bodine, and people are probably looking at me like, who is this guy, like, wearing his cowboy boots and wandering around like he's lost? So he probably stuck out like Jethro or like, like Elf. He was a Jew in the middle of an Assyrian city. Now, we can look at this a little bit more. There, there's even more to this clause, this, this idea that, that, that Nineveh was great. You see, this, the passage says that Nineveh was a large city. Um, if we actually parse this out and look at the literal translation, the way it's translated is that Nineveh was a city great to God. Nineveh was a city great to God. And when we start looking at exactly what this means, there's, there's several nuances to this. Nineveh was a great city in multiple ways. You see, first of all, Nineveh was great in their own eyes. You guys ever been to a city that's kind of great in their own eyes? It usually plays out in sports, right? It was, a, it was a city that was great in their own eyes. Man, Dallas is a city that's pretty great in their own eyes. Anybody from Dallas? My wife is, so I can say that. No. There's sometimes, you know, cities are usually great in their own eyes. It was also great to their enemies. We see in the beginning of the book that part of Jonah's fear was that, that they were ruthless to other people. So they, they were great to their enemies. But most importantly, the idea that we get here in verse 3 is that, that Nineveh was great in the eyes of God. I love how one commentator puts it. Its greatness and wickedness drew the wrath of God. So it was so wickedness that, that its great wickedness drew the wrath of God. But its size, its importance, and unknowing helplessness also drew God's compassion. The Lord cared about great Nineveh. And that is why he sent Jonah to preach to him. The passage moves on. Look at verse 4 with me. On the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. 
In this, we see that God cares about Nineveh, the great city of Nineveh, and he has a big message for Nineveh. He cares about Nineveh. It's a great city to him, not only because the wickedness draws his wrath, but he also pursues them, just like he pursued Jonah in the first parts of the book. And he has a big message for them. To kind of bring this on, uh, to, to bear upon us this morning, in this we see that God has a big message and that his message is for everyone. Even these Ninevites. That God has a big message and this message is for everyone. And if you're taking notes this morning, if you're following along, the first thing I want you to take away this morning is that God cares about everyone. He offers his good news to anyone willing to listen. God offers his good news to anyone willing to listen. God's pursuit of us, God's coming after us with the gospel what Jesus Christ has done for us extends to all people. This message of Jesus Christ, the good news that he died on the cross and raised from the grave, is offered to everyone. What we get here in this, this idea is that, that there is no elitism. There is no great, greater person when it comes to the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, when we were looking at the beginning part of this, you can kind of flip back and look. Jonah kind of had an elitist mindset. He wasn't so afraid of just the fact that they might murder him. He was more afraid of the fact that he hated them. He didn't think that they deserve God's grace. And so he was more hooked on his elitism to not go. But what we see here is that God's message doesn't exclude the Ninevites. So there's no elitism in the message and the offer of Jesus Christ. God still cared about the Ninevites and he still sent Jonah there's no favoritism in his message. There's, there's no social status or political status or financial status or fill-in-the-blank status that has a bearing on God's call on your life. So the status doesn't make a difference either. And at the same time, there are no borders and there are no boundaries. There's nothing that, that gets in the way of God's boundless love. It's offered to everyone. I love how 1 Timothy 2 puts it. It says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in the godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Like Jonah, when we understand that God has a powerful, big message for everyone, we must work to let other people hear that message, to know that message. And the challenge for us this morning is, is ask yourself, have you told someone recently about the good news of Jesus Christ? Have you told them about what Jesus is doing in your life and what he's done for you? But there's more even, even to this. Let's keep reading this morning. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3 with me. So Jonah has preached the word that God gave him. In verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least, least put on sackcloth. 
One of the things I love about Jonah is how blunt and to the point he sometimes is. Right here, he's, he comes right out and says it. He spends no time getting down to the brass tacks. The people of Nineveh believed the message that Jonah was preaching. They believed. But more important than just believing was how they actually responded. We know that Jonah preached and they believed, but more importantly is, is exactly how it's described, how they respond. I want us to focus on three words in their response. The author here uses three words, believe, proclaim, and put on. Believe, proclaim, and put on. In fact, my version says uh, declared. Look at verse 5 again. The Ninevites believed, they declared a fast, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Once we start to kind of parse this out and look at these words, we first see that the belief, that their response comes to their belief. It reflects that they responded inwardly. You believe, you start believing with your heart. So the message of Jonah that God sent him with affected their hearts. And so it was an inward response. God changed their hearts. Man, this is such a big theme throughout Jonah. God changing people's hard hearts. Jonah was our first example. He changed Jonah's hearts. He changed the pagan sailors that were in the the boat with him. He changed their hearts. And now he's changing the hearts of the Ninevites. So our response starts with belief and a changing of our hearts. But secondly, that idea of proclaim or declare, whatever your version says, that idea of speaking out, it shows that the response is articulated, that they declared what took place in their heart, that they said, this is what has happened to us. Jonah gave us this message, and we're going to tell people about it. So it starts to work its way outward, and it works its way out by them saying this is what happened. And lastly, that idea of to put on reflects that the inward change had an outward effect. It was visibly uh, noticeable from the outsiders that God was changing their lives, that God was working in their hearts. And so it works its, the, the response works its way out of their hearts in that way. This idea is expounded in verses 6 through 9. If you would look at those verses with me. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let every one call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. See, what we find is, is we've seen this response of they're believing, they're proclaiming, and they're put on, putting on. But then we also see that this king led by example. This king led through an example of his own repentance. You see, I, I, I think this response from the king was gen, genuine. I don't think he was just faking it. He didn't hear the message and, and kind of throw this idea that Jonah was thrown out, that, that his God was the God and he was a real God. He didn't just throw it up there with other gods that they worshiped because they, they were polytheistic. They had tons of, tons of gods. He didn't just throw it up there and, and throw it in the bunch. But, but we see the same reaction from the king. 
So he didn't just appease Jonah by throwing it in there, but his change of heart was genuine. The change of heart through the Ninevites was genuine. And then we see the response in verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. You see, we know it's genuine because God relented. Their heart changed, their response to God's message was genuine, and God relented. So if you're taking notes this morning, the second thing I want you to take away is that big movements, because this was a big movement, right? Big movements start in small places. They start in the heart of man. It started in the people's hearts, and we see that through their response. It started in the heart of the king, because we see that from his response. Big movements start in small places. They start in the heart of man. You see, and this is kind of the other side of the coin. When we see that, that, that the gospel, the news, the message that God has for us is offered to all people, it's, it's a large message, and it's not, it's not held by boundaries. It's, it's not held by elitism or status or anything like that. But what we see in this point is that as his offer is extended to everyone, there needs to be the right response to his message. You can't just hear his message, but you have to respond to his message. I'm doing a wedding in a few weeks, and, and as I was thinking about this a little bit more, um, has, has anybody ever been invited to a wedding? I don't know when the save the date got started. They've started doing that save the date. So it's like, hey, here's your invitation for your invitation, or like, you know, put it on your calendar, but the, 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 the good one's coming in a, in a little while. But, but you always get an invitation, right? And it's Fancy, flowery, flowery lettering and just beautiful. And, and, and when we're doing all that stuff, you know, when, when we were doing it, my wife got on to me because of my handwriting. You know how wedding invitations are, like fancy, froofy. But, but the other thing with a wedding invitation is, is I start getting excited because you know what a wedding's like, right? And uh, I, I love to, man, I'll, I'm going to eat like four or five pieces of cake. I'm going to have like two or three plates of, of the food. And it's just a good time, right? You start getting excited for the celebration. When I was thinking about this, what I was reminded of is, is that when it comes to the invitation, the invitation from God, when it comes to the gospel, everyone gets an invitation. But what do you have to do with the wedding invitation? It comes with a little slip of paper in it, and it has, you can either check it off or put your name on it, but you have to RSVP, Right? When you get an invitation, you have to RSVP. So the point in this, and in, in what we're looking at these first two points, is that God's message extends to all kinds of people without any boundaries. But it, recall, it calls for the right response. So everybody gets an invitation, but not everybody RSVPs. Everybody's given this offer, but the key is that, that you have to respond, and the response starts in your heart. The application for this is fairly simple. If you want to see change happen, start by examining your own heart. If you want to see things start changing in your life, if you want to see the gospel have an impact and start, start changing and transforming and, and making your life what it wants to be, making your life to look more like Jesus, you've got to start by examining your own heart. Like most kings... 
this king here, and, and we see his response. Like most kings, he was probably fairly disconnected from the day-to-day life, right? Like when you're a king, we just had that royal wedding. I kept thinking, like, do they, you know, they're, they're up there in the palace. Do, it, it's so unrealistic. What is it, like $40 million? I'm, I'm sure one of you ladies might correct me. But I think they spent something like $40 million on their wedding. How disconnected is that? I mean, I know we spend a lot on weddings, but I don't know anybody that spends that much on a wedding. But when you're royalty like this king, he probably was disconnected from the everyday life. He wasn't down in the streets watching Jonah, this goofball Jewish guy walking through the streets that stuck out like a sore thumb. He was disconnected from that. But somehow the the word, the message reaches his ears. And this message from a, a, a stranger from different lands impacts his heart. Just look at, look at how he responds. This is how we know it impacted his heart. He rises from his throne. Do you know kings that get up off their throne because a message is so powerful? That's, that's not a regular occurrence. He gets up off his throne. This is what's more powerful. He takes off his robes and he replaces them with rags. And probably the most unkingly thing he does is that he sits himself down in the dust. This was a genuine heart change. It's a remarkable act of humility and, more importantly, repentance. He was cut to the heart, not only by his wickedness, but even by the prospect that God might relent for him and his people. Like this king, we too need to examine our hearts. That's where it starts. Real change starts in our hearts. So we're encouraged to look at our hearts this morning. And finally, stepping back, getting to our last point this morning, is that what we see here is a movement. What we see here is a movement. You know, the focus of the book so far has kind of been on, you know, there's been a little bit of a movement, like through the, through the ship when they're facing the storms and they're, they're throwing them over. There's kind of a movement there, but this is a genuine citywide movement that starts here in Nineveh. So if you look at verse 5 again with me, we can see just how extensive this movement was. In verse 5 it says, The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. It doesn't say, oh, just a couple of them, just the king's household, just the poor people, just the people on the streets. It says all of them, from the greatest to the least, If I've ever been looking for a movement to understand what a movement looks like, this describes a movement. There was a movement through Nineveh. This wicked, hateful, killing-type, murderous people. You know, I start thinking like, man, if you're a Ninevite, you're thinking through this, and man, you hear this word that's coming from Jonah, that's from the Lord, and you're thinking, you know what, maybe this human torture instrument, maybe I just need to put that in the closet. You know, if you're the king, like, hey, get some of your people. Can we go take down that stack of skulls that's in the city center? Like, God is speaking to us. You know, they're, they're like, this movement is, is radically changing the city from, from their pagan evil ways. The reason it had changed is they had heard a message that changed everything. Not only that God's wrath might come upon them, but that God would, would relent. Changed everything. And the last thing I want you to take away this morning 
is that when we hear God's message, our call is to get caught up in the movement. Our call is to get, up, get caught up in the movement. Everyone's looking for a movement, right? There's always some kind of movement trying to, to start and get going. Sometimes there are movements that start and get going. Anybody take place in the most recent movement of Pokemon Go? That was a movement, right? I didn't get it. I didn't do it. I didn't really play it. I know there's a lot of people that did. Or I was just surprised that Pokemon came back around again. It was like cool when I was young, or it wasn't cool when I was younger. Some kids thought it was cool. But that was a, Pokemon Go was a movement, right? Kind of came and, and, and we see movements like that. Uh, I think more, more specifically, like in this, think of um, like a, the pay it forward movement. Anybody gotten caught up in the pay it forward movement? You're in line at Taco Bell and all of a sudden like someone's already paid. And so you kind of feel obligated. You got to pay for the person behind you. So there's kind of this pay it forward movement, right? We're all looking for movements. A movement took place here in Nineveh. There was a movement through this city. The, the movement of the Spirit of God and, and, and God working on these people's hearts and impressing them that they needed life change. But we're all looking for a movement like that. And what we see in the gospel is we see an initiated movement that we have the opportunity to get swept up in. That we have the opportunity to be part of a real, lasting, impactful movement that's taking place. I mean, I'll say that here in Helena, the movement is trying to catch on. And our encouragement is to jump right into that movement and be a part of it, to be a part of what God's doing here. It's not just Capstone, but there's other sister churches that are, that are doing what we're trying to do. And there's a lot of people here that need to be a part of the movement. When I started thinking about this uh, a, a little bit, being part of the movement isn't just about being religious. I do some things religiously, like brushing my teeth. Okay, maybe not so religiously. Just kidding. But we, we brush our teeth religiously, right? Well, that's not really a movement. Or it's not just going through the motions of church or spirituality. That's not really being part of a movement. It's living a life that reflects that you have had an encounter with a risen Jesus Christ and living that together in a community that impacts our community. Living together in, in, a, in a body of believers that impacts our community with that, that relationship that we have with the risen Jesus Christ. See, being part of a, a movement isn't just about having a list of rules or doing all the right things. It's not checking off the box and saying, okay, I did it this month. But it's saying that the truths that I find in, in God's Word, the, the things that I find here have changed my life. It's telling others, I've decided to follow Jesus, and He has accomplished things in my life that I could have never accomplished on my own. Because that, that happens when we give our lives to Christ. He does things in our lives that, 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 that we could never do on our own. And being a part of a movement is telling other people about that. Again, I say this all the time, but, but Capstone isn't about coming here to act perfect. I don't know a single Christian that's perfect. If you ever meet one that tells you they are, don't believe them. And they're just imperfect because they just told you a lie. They're not perfect. So it's kind of a circular reasoning there. Don't ever believe them. But at Capstone, we come because we realize that, that we're seeking and following Christ, even in our mistakes and the things we struggle with, and even on our good days, we're seeking Christ together. 
Being part of a movement is living that out together. It's telling others that I've decided to follow Jesus. And he's done things in my life that I could have never accomplished on my own. You see, when we look at Jonah, Jonah had been through the ringer, right? He'd been through it all. You know, he disobeyed God, tried to go to the other side of the world, stared into the face of a horrible storm, got thrown into a raging ocean, got swallowed by a fish, got spit back up. That was probably just as bad as being in the fish. He'd been through the ringer. But now he was changed. Now he was different. He now had a message to share because of what he had been through. The way that, that, that God had changed his life. His message was powerful because of all that that he'd been through. And, and that experience was part of his message and was part of his own story. Our charge this morning is that this city, you don't have to look very far to know there's discouragement, even in Helena. Even though we're, a, we're not a big city, we're, we're in a sense a little city or a town, there's still such a need in Helena. You don't have to look very far. But if we're going to be part of this movement, we need to realize the need even here in Helena. We need to realize that, that even our city, our world needs a movement. We see this. We, we know that our world needs a movement because people get excited when there's a movement. Like that pay it forward, that is kind of cool. I love when that, you know, when, when we're doing stuff like that, that's awesome. But the bad thing about that is it only lasts about 10 cars. And then the movement's done, right? You get one person that's like, I'm not buying nobody behind me. You know, you got that one person having a bad day or something. So it might be a movement for 10 cars, but that's not a real long-lasting impactful movement what if the movement was broader what if it was normal what if we weren't so shocked when people bought somebody lunch what if that was normal what if it was expected i think a lot of those other movements die out because there's no real purpose behind them they're starting to get at the point of of why we do those things because we need to be selfless and care about other people but the best way for us to understand selflessness is to understand what Christ has done for us. Like these Ninevites, that God was going to send wrath, but that he would relent if they believed. God can send and did send wrath, but Jesus took it on the cross. And that's enough to push a movement to make a lasting impact. The gospel brings purpose to these movements. You see, when you decide to follow Christ, not just believe, but when he really changes your heart, it changes everything. And when you decide to follow Christ, you end up living a life of pay it forward. Not just five minutes at Taco Bell. It's a life centered on that, of paying it forward, of living selfless for others. Again, not perfect, but learning how to walk with God and do that more and more and more. You end up love, learning how to really love your neighbor because you follow Jesus who brought you, like Jonah, out of the depths. And now you know how to love other people that might still be in the depths. And we can love our neighbor. You see, the gospel ushers in a true movement. And the, the movement's already even started. The church is the gospel movement. And good and bad, sometimes the church doesn't do a great job of, 
of being the right type of movement. But there's other times that the church is right on to what we're supposed to be doing. And our encouragement is to, to get into that flow of where the church is, is making the movement happen and be a part of what God is doing in our city, in our state, in our world. See, the gospel is more than just a personal experience. We talk about that when we baptize people. Yes, you're being baptized. You're the one going under the water. But when you're raised up to this congregation, you've got this congregation with you. It's not just about the personal experience. You see, the gospel starts in our own hearts, but then it has the power to to change and impact the world. The gospel is a movement that lasts because it goes straight to the source. It gets after our hearts, and then it goes to the initiator of all movements, and that's God.